0: At science.org/news, scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org/news. Click subscribe. Welcome to the Science podcast for August twelfth, two thousand sixteen. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Julius Nielsen talks about a possibly four hundred year old Greenland shark, making it the longest-lived vertebrate animal. And David Grimm is here with a roundup of stories from our daily news
1: site. Support for the Science Podcast comes from AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and its members. Join them in serving science and society at www.aas.org.
0: Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. First up, we have a story by our very own Mr. David Grimm. (laughs) I was a little confused when I saw this story in the lineup. Pet clinical trials. Was it about putting pets into clinical trials to test vet medicine? Was it enrolling pets in people medicine trials? Or is it just using cats and dogs in place of other more common lab animals? So, Dave. What is this about?
1: Well, you've probably heard of human clinical trials. That's where people volunteer to be part of a study that's maybe testing a new experimental drug or therapy. And they're basically talking about the same thing, doing that with cats and dogs, taking people's pets. And maybe your dog has a a rare form of brain cancer or your cat has a kidney problem for which there's no good treatment. And maybe veterinarians at some university are conducting a trial where they're saying, like, hmm, I wonder if this new drug will treat kidney problems in cats, or I wonder if inserting this device into a dog's brain will help combat its brain cancer.
0: This is more like human clinical trials, but they're run by veterinarians. Are they looking for better ways to treat dogs? Or are they also looking for better ways to treat people? Well, the
1: hope is that these trials will actually lead to better treatments for people. One of the big problems in animal research that's really been going on for a long time now is a lot of In fact, most, if not all, drugs are initially tested in rats and mice. And often these drugs will show very good effectiveness in these animals, but just fail spectacularly when it comes to humans. In fact, only about 11% of the oncology drugs that work in rodents in the lab ever translate to people. There's this sort of what some scientists call this valley of death between this sort of promise of drugs in rats and mice versus what actually happens for people. And part of the problem is that rats and mice live in this very artificial world. They live in these very sterile labs. They're given sterile food. They don't naturally get a lot of these diseases like cancer. In fact, scientists have to breed them to get cancer. When you compare that to cats and dogs, They're a lot more like us. They live in the same homes that we do. They're often eating the same food. They're exposed to the same environment. And they actually get a lot of the same diseases. Uh, There's a very common type of breast cancer that cats get, which is also a very common type of breast cancer in people. Osteosarcoma, which is a bone cancer in dogs, is almost identical to the bone cancer in humans. So there's a lot more overlap in the diseases that our pets get than we get.
0: So it sounds like there's some benefit for the science, the drug development end of things. But what about pet owners? What are they going to get out of putting their pet through something like this?
1: Well, that's a good question. And unlike human medicine, so Sarah, if you were to come down, God forbid, with some sort of cancer, um, you would go to your doctor, they would put you on therapies, and your insurance would cover all of it. But even though pet insurance is becoming more popular, if your dog has brain cancer, or your cat needs a kidney transplant, you could be talking about thousands or tens of thousands of dollars you might potentially have to pay out of pocket. So one advantage of enrolling in clinical trial is that those expenses are typically covered.
0: Right. What about the fact that these animals live with us and they have such varied backgrounds? Does that affect you know how reliable this data is going to be down the road?
1: Right. Well, so some of the same things that make pets good models for human disease also make them bad scientific models because one of the advantages of rats and mice is they're so homogenous and their environments are so sterile. There's so few variables. So if something goes wrong, it's a lot easier if you're doing an experiment with rats and mice to figure out, okay, What went wrong? What variables cause that? But with cats and dogs, you're dealing with tons of variables. They're all on different diets. They live in different parts of the state, potentially. They have different exercise. Then if a drug doesn't work, it becomes much, much harder to figure out why it didn't work.
0: But that's a lot more like a human clinical trial, too. It is
1: a lot more like a human clinical trial.
0: One thing I saw was a table in your story that just lists all these different drugs and animals that are involved. Have there been any major successes, any big wins from approaching drug development like this?
1: Well, that's been the real big challenge for the pet clinical trials field because there hasn't been like a major breakthrough drug that was first tested in cats and dogs that then translated to people. The field thinks that's coming. There's been some small successes. There have been drugs that the Food and Drug Administration has been has accelerated its approval on because they were shown to work in cats and dogs. There have been surgeries that have been perfected in cats and dogs that that were then used in people. But the field's still really waiting for that big blockbuster breakthrough of a drug or a therapy that is first tested in cats and dogs, shows a lot of promise, and then also works in people.
0: What if we do end up developing better drugs for cats and dogs, but it never really translates into humans?
1: Well, you know, some advocates say that may not be such a bad thing. I mean, think of the family, the human family today, especially in countries like the United States, cats and dogs are also part of that family. So whether you're helping the human or whether you're helping the cat or dog, you're still helping the family.
0: Next up, we have a story on a long and satisfying debunking.
1: <laughs> I know you love a good debunking, Sarah. I do
0: love a good debunking. And we haven't had one on the podcast in a while. And I don't know if we've ever had talked about such a long-standing and famous hoax. We're talking about Piltdown Man fossilized humanoid bones that were uncovered, I'm using air quotes around that, in 1912 that were claimed to be a missing link in human evolution. But the whole thing started even earlier than 1912, right,
1: Dave? Well, right. This story really starts in 1907 when, in Germany, a sand mine worker discovered the jawbone of a species of early human called Homo heidelbergensis, which we now know lived somewhere between 200,000 and 600,000 years ago and was likely a common ancestor to both modern humans and Neanderthals. So this was a big find in Germany, and all these British archaeologists were really jealous. They're like, we need our own big find. And then lo and behold, a few years later, along comes Piltdown Man.
0: And what did they find when they say they found Piltdown Man?
1: Well, this was a team led by Charles Dawson, who was a professional lawyer and amateur fossil hunter. And what he said he's he found these bones in this gravel pit of a small UK village called Piltdown, hence the name. And what was interesting about what he said he discovered was you had sort of a human-like skull, but an ape-like mandible and some teeth that also sort of seemed to maybe be transitional between human and ape. So It seemed like this was the missing link between humans and other apes.
0: The Piltdown Man didn't hold up under scrutiny for too long, right? You know, 1953, and uh, I guess that's four decades later. But anyway, researchers noticed the bones were different ages. At this point, the hoax is revealed, but who the perpetrator or perpetrators were was still up for discussion.
1: Right. Well, Charles Dawson was the leading suspect because he's the one that found, that quote-unquote, found the remains, but there were other individuals involved. He worked very closely with Sir Arthur Smith Woodward, who was a paleontologist. They also worked uh, closely with Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, who was a French Jesuit priest who assisted in the excavation, and also Martin Hinton, a volunteer who worked with Smith Woodward. There was even some speculation that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the inventor of Sherlock Holmes, was somehow involved.
0: Coming out of the 50s, we had kind of a, a slew of characters. It could be one, it could be all of them, nobody knew. So let's get to the present day here. We now have a modern scientist sleuth that took a very careful look at the set of bones and picked out enough evidence to firmly place the blame on one person. What did this researcher do?
1: She used um, computer scans to really take a very close look at these bones. and She also did DNA sequencing. And what the DNA sequencing revealed is that at least the teeth all came from an orangutan. <laughs> so and all the same orangutan. So the chief researcher Isabel de Groot thinks that the forger or forgers got an orangutan skeleton from a curiosity shop, which apparently is something you could do a hundred years ago. But then she also looked took a closer look at these computer scans. And what they revealed was that there was this strange putty on virtually every bone that seemed to be covering these cracks and when she looked into the cracks she found pebbles which she thinks were used to weigh down the bones because fossil bones are supposed to weigh a lot more than fresh bones what was interesting about all this stuff that she looked at is it all was sort of very consistent and all seemed to be done in the same way which to her suggested that the entire forgery was done by just one single person
0: Okay, but she also picked the person, right? right?
1: She did. So she did. So she suspects, not perhaps not surprisingly, that it was indeed Charles Dawson, the man who found Piltdown Man. And that's because Dawson had a lot of the type of knowledge that would be needed to do these things. He was, of course, an amateur archaeologist. He regularly attended these uh, paleontological meetings, which means that he had really knowledge of what the community was looking for, what he sort of needed to fabricate to convince people. He also had a habit of small-time forgery. He had actually been called out for a couple other fakes. And he was also very desperate to be accepted as a bona fide scientist. So he had a lot of skills and motivation.
0: This is a 100-year-old hoax, and it took this long to uncover. Do you think anything like this is going on now?
1: You know, the scientists say that it's probably very unlikely because it would be much easier to catch these things now than it was in the past. But this whole idea of Jumping to conclusions about specimens still goes on. And and so DeGroote says that, you know, one lesson that we can take away from this is that we should always be careful just because we're really looking for something and really hoping for something like the British were 100 years ago. We still have to do our due diligence and make sure that something that we see is actually the truth.
0: Lastly, we have a story on a debatably smart crow. Betty the Caledonian crow is famous in animal cognition circles for her tool making. But now the question is being raised, was Betty really sizing up a problem and coming up with solutions or just doing what came naturally to her? Dave, let's start with the kinds of problems that Betty was able to solve.
1: So Betty was recovered from the wild 14 years ago, and she was given an interesting puzzle. She was shown a plastic tube. And inside that plastic tube was this tiny basket of meat. And the only way to really retrieve the meat was to have a tiny hook. And the researchers gave Betty a straight piece of wire. And almost immediately, Betty fashioned that wire into a hook and used the hook to hoist out the basket of meat. And scientists were super excited about this at the time, because not only did they think that Betty had sort of created this new tool which she didn't know how to make out of material she had never encountered before, but she knew exactly the type of tool she needed to create to solve the problem, which suggested that Betty had this type of complex abstract thought that scientists only thought at the time humans were capable of.
0: Things are going to go a little downhill. (laughs) (laughs) Betty is not novel among these types of crows, right?
1: So what scientists even knew at the time was that these types of crows are very smart, and very good tool makers. They already knew in the wild that these crows could take sticks and sort of bend them and create these little tiny hooks at the end. And they could use these hooks to grab grubs from logs. But Betty seemed to be taking things to the next level because she was creating what scientists thought was a new type of tool. And also, again, from a material that she wouldn't have encountered in the wild.
0: Right. So is what Betty did special or not? Researchers brought in 85 wild crows Mm -hmm. to check a little more systematically. What did they see?
1: They found that most of these crows did what they do in the wild. They can make these little tools with the hooks. But 10 of the crows actually took things a step further. They actually bent their tool actually into a full curve, kind of like how Betty did, and in the same way that Betty did it as well.
0: So there was a small fraction that had Betty-like skills. Right. Well, does this make Betty... uh... Robot? As you know. <laughs> Does this make Betty kind of more robotic in nature, as you suggest in your title? Is she just doing kind of what comes naturally to her?
1: It really depends who you talk to. So, some experts say that this really knocks Betty down a peg because even though she did create this tool, she pretty much wasn't doing anything differently than she did in the wild. So, it wasn't like she saw a new problem and invented this whole new way to solve the problem. But others say Betty actually did do something pretty spectacular because, A, She was using a wire, which she never would have encountered in the wild. So she somehow knew that this material that she didn't really maybe know what it was, she somehow knew she could still fashion that into the tool that she needed. And again, she fashioned this very specific tool for this very specific scenario, which again seems to suggest that she had some sort of intuition about the problem she had to solve. So maybe not a crowbot after all.
0: Thanks, Dave. What else is on the site this week?
1: Well, Sarah, we've got a story about whether... Giving financial aid to homeless people really helps them. Also, a story about a mutation that made it easier to ride horses that seems to have arisen about 1,200 years ago.
0: Wait, is the mutation in people or in the horses? <laughs> That's
1: a good question. <laughs> in horses. <laughs> it's in horses. Um, and it's actually doing very well on the site. Readers are really responding to this story. Also, from our policy blog, Science Insider, we've got a story about the 20 questions U.S. science groups have for the American presidential candidates. Also a story about how Americans may know more than you think about science. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site.
0: Thanks, Dave. Thanks, sir. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencebag.org. A quick Google search reveals that a 180-year-oldish tortoise is the oldest living animal on Earth, but it looks like Greenland sharks may be giving tortoises a run for their money. Perhaps living up to 400 years. Julius Nielsen is here to talk about how they measured these sharks' age, a challenging problem with a cartilaginous skeleton. Julius, can we start with a little background on Greenland sharks?
2: Well, Greenland sharks is uh... One of the largest carnivore sharks in the world, they grow to larger than five meters, at least in length. They are actually distributed all over the northern North Atlantic from Arctic waters and especially in Greenland waters. They are also known to be and considered to be deep sea sharks. Most of the sharks that we encounter are at very great depths, like below 200 meters and and down to 1000 meters. If you visit the Arctic or sail around in Greenland, then it's very rare to see a Greenland shark. And I myself have actually never seen a free-swimming Greenland shark. I have only caught them being dragged up oh. from the from the deep ocean.
0: One thing I want to make a note about is that when I told you we were going to talk about a really old tortoise, you felt that there was another animal that we should mention that was older than the tortoise in the zoo.
2: Yeah. The oldest animal uh, known to science is the Greenland whale, a bowhead whale, which also from uh, chemical analysis, has been estimated to be uh, 211 years old. From my research, that has been the oldest vertebrate animal known to science until now.
0: And the big difference with the tortoise is that the tortoise has lived in a zoo for a very long time, so the aging there is just basically counting as the years go by, but the whale and the shark are estimated.
2: You can say that from, from the bowhead whale and the Greenland shark, this is estimates that we calculate from analysis, but the tortoise has been living in captivity for 170 years and therefore it's very certain that this particular tortoise actually is as old as it, as it is. It was actually collected by Charles Darwin and brought to a zoo in uh, Australia, I think.
0: Why is it so difficult to figure out how old animals are in the wild, and particularly these uh, Greenland sharks? In
2: general, age determination of fish and animals is a uh, huge scientific discipline. And normally for, for teleost fish, like Atlantic cod or salmon or char, they have these uh, ortholids in their head. Each year that the animal grows, it produces a growth ring so if you have an Atlantic cut which is five years old, you can take the otolith, you can break it, and then you can count five earrings, and then you kind of know how old the animal is.
0: And the otolith is inside of their head, and it helps them with balance. Is that right?
2: Exactly. But the thing is, for sharks and elasmobranchs in general, they don't have these otoliths. It's much more challenging to determine the age of race and sharks in general. Most sharks, maybe because they have some some hard body parts. For example, there are spiny dogfish, which has a very hard spine where you can count growth layers, and also white sharks or beagle sharks, they have a calcified vertebra. But in case of the Greenland shark, it's it's just a very, very soft shark, and its entire skeleton, of course, it's made out of cartilage, as with all elastin branch, but it's just extremely soft, and there are no growth rings or growth layers that are being deposited, at least not what has been identified by anyone. So actually, you cannot determine the age of a greenland shark by any conventional methods.
0: Let's talk about your method then. You work with hydrogen bomb testing from the 1950s, and you link that with isotopes in shark eyes. And then you make some other calculations.
2: Well, there is like several stages. First of all, as you said, we analyzed the eyes. And the eyes of all vertebrate animals is very special, actually, because uh, in the eyes we have our islands, and in the islands there is a nucleus, and the nucleus is consist of this metabolic inert proteins. That means that the tissue does not change during life. If you isolate the center of the island's nucleus, then you have a tissue sample that was made when the shark was, well, approximately zero years old, or was a pup inside its mother's uh, stomach. We have isolated this tissue. Of sharks of varying size. So some sharks were small juvenile, some were subadult, and some were very big, sexually mature females. And what we then did was we analyzed the radiocarbon content in this particular tissue, and that allows us to produce age estimates. And now, having clarified the tissue that we analyzed and that this tissue represents age zero, then I want to talk about this bomb radiocarbon dating, which is kind of the right. first step that we that, that we did. So. In the mid 1950s, there was this testing of hydrogen bombs, atmospheric hydrogen bombs, and that left a huge amount of radiocarbon to be produced in the atmosphere. This uh, radiocarbon was actually incorporated throughout terrestrial and marine food webs all over the world. In terrestrial food webs, you can see a very, very sharp increase in radiocarbon content. If you, for example, have a chronology from a 100 year old tree, then you will see, like, in the late 1950s, then suddenly. The increase in radiocarbon content in in those rings just increased drastically, and it's the same in, cr- in chronologies from the ocean. You also see that 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 could be a chronology obtained from growth rings in a clam, and then you see like around 1960 you suddenly have a very very sharp increase of radiocarbon. So when we have our islands of Greenland sharks of varying size, then we could easily evaluate. Which sharks are older than this event, which in this case in the ocean is is a chemical time mark representing the early 1960s, which sharks are older and which sharks are younger. And what we found is that it was only the smallest sharks that we analyzed that actually were affected by this. So it was a huge surprise to us to learn that that all sharks larger than 2 meters and 20, they were actually older than 50 years. And since it was only f- females that we were analyzing, we knew, wow, these sharks would have been extremely old because they first reached sexual maturity around four meters. So a half size sexual mature female shark was actually 50 years old. And that was, of course, a, a huge surprise to us.
0: Well, so now with this signature, you can tell whether a shark was born before the bomb pulse or after. But if it's been born before, how do you know how old it is? Because again, you don't have that signal in place. What what do you look at then?
2: Well, you can say that it's actually two different variations of uh, radiocarbon dating that we are using. Most of our sharks that we analyzed were older than the bomb pulse. And for those sharks, we use a more traditional radiocarbon dating. We used some calibration program and the marine calibration curve. And that allows us to by analyzing in the context of how does the shark grow and what do we know about the spatial variation in radiocarbon in the past 400 years in the northern North Atlantic, you can type all these informations into a calibration program and then it analyzes your samples and then it gives you some age estimates. And that's also why in the paper, as you will see, we are quite certain about the timing of the bomb pulse. We're saying the timing of the bomb pulse is no later than early 1960s whereas for all the older sharks the estimates that we produce for those they're much broader and that's because there's much more uncertainty uncertainty about the age of these sharks and the oldest sharks that we have in our analysis is from between 272 and 512 years old and I think this may be the only paper in the world that has ever been made where where you can call it a success and you still have an uncertainty for your oldest sample of 240 years. But in this case, the Greenland shark is just so old that even with the lower end, which would be that it is older than 272 years.
0: Wow. I mean, that's really old. That's much older than the other animals we've talked about so far. Is there anything else that lives this long that we know about?
2: Our analysis definitely makes Greenland sharks the oldest vertebrate animal, but you have other animals that live longer. For example, the ocean quahawk, which to my knowledge is the oldest animal in the world. And the ocean quahawk is a mussel. There has been found one in Iceland where scientists have counted uh, 507 growth rings, meaning that this particular mussel has been living for 507 years.
0: Do you think that there are other sharks, other types of sharks out there that also have this lifespan?
2: There are so many different sharks out there and especially deep sea sharks, which also share these soft features like the Greenland shark and, and therefore are difficult to age determine. But I don't think it's normal for sharks to get as old because the thing about the Greenland shark is that it is by far one of the largest sharks in the world and at least one of the largest carnivore sharks. And I think it's the combination of a very, very big body size, and then also very low body temperature because the Greenland shark lives in Arctic cold waters and its body temperature is the same as these surroundings. So it's typically between minus one and minus plus seven degrees. So that would be the body temperature. I would expect their their metabolic rate to go extremely slow. And then when you grow at least five meters in length, that is kind of what can give you the the very high age. But I can't say with certainty that there is not Other kinds of shark that gets as old, but uh, because it is as big as it is and it is as cold as it is, then it is a good candidate for the oldest uh, vertebrate animal in the world.
0: Knowing now that the Greenland shark can live this long, does that mean anything different for their conservation status? I mean, are they more in danger now because they're sexually mature
2: very, very late (laughs) Well, I don't think the Greenland shark is more in danger. But I definitely think that these findings, they kind of give give some food for thought in terms of whether Greenland sharks can be commercially exploited more than they already are now. There is definitely a bycatch problem all over the Northern Atlantic. And there's also a little bit of commercial exploitation in Iceland. But there are also several larger initiatives in Greenland where people want to exploit this resource so I think such such ideas in the light of these findings are not very good, even though that there are in some regions, they seems to be very abundant. When you evaluate the size composition of Greenland sharks all over the Northern Atlantic, it's clear to me that, that sexually mature females, the very, very big ones, and thereby also the very old ones, they are quite rare, and also the pups are quite rare. So what I think is that there has been this commercial fishery which stopped like, 40, 60 years ago, that livers were commercially exploited and used for machine oil. When that stopped, I actually think that the consequences of this fishery is still evident among Greenland sharks. And I think the very high age is the reason why that the population has not recovered yet from this uh, very, very intense fishing pressure where tens of thousands of animals were caught each year across the Northern Atlantic. So I think that even though that the Greenland shark might not be in danger right now, then then I also think it's important in light of these findings to have a very, very precautionary approach for any future exploitation of them as a resource, as an economical resource.
0: There's this kind of long standing irony in old animal research, even old plant research, where a researcher finds something that's very, very old and then it dies in the process of the age determination. Is is that what happened here, too?
2: We used the eye. So, of course, the, the animal was euthanized before we took that sample. But our samples has mainly been sampled from bycatched fish. And that is fish that is caught by trawlers and had very lethal injuries. And, of course, I'm being asked all the time, how do you feel about that you indirectly have killed an animal that was uh, maybe 400 years old or at least 272 years old? And the thing is, I feel fine because... The reality is that thousands of Greenland sharks are caught each year in bycatch and thousands of Greenland sharks are yearly being killed during this bycatch. So that we have now analyzed twenty-eight dead sharks. I don't feel sorry for the sharks, but I just I'm glad for the Greenland shark population in general that we finally have an argument that, that can mm-hmm. be used in terms of conservation and, and future management of this species, because this is an argument towards policy or decision makers that is heavy rather than just what previously has been said is that maybe it's an old animal and we think, we don't know how many there are and things like that. There are so many uncertainties about this animal. It's extremely powerful and it will be powerful in the future to have some, some solid arguments why these animals should be protected and why there should be a very precautionary approach uh, in the management of these, of these animals in the future.
0: Julius Nielsen is a graduate student at the University of Copenhagen. He writes about long-lived Greenland sharks in this week's science. Thanks so much. Thank you. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi, on behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS. Thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year subscription to Science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org/join. That's AAAS.org/join.